This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is again from Romans 14. You can find it on page 949 in the Bibles there in your rows. It's also printed in your bulletin. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. We have been... Studying the end of the book of Romans uh, this fall with an eye toward what the Apostle Paul has to say about life together in community. And Ryan opened up the first half of Romans chapter 14 for us last week. And both what Ryan had, uh, the portion that he had last week and the text that Jathniel just read to us this morning, have to do with uh, how we can deal with differences on disputable matters and still hold together, hang together as a community. Now, listen, there are such a thing as indisputable matters, that is, things that are so core or so foundational that you really do need to have those things in common for it to make any sense at all to identify with a particular community of people. For example, right, if you started a recycling club in your neighborhood, let's say, and somebody wanted to join the recycling club, who regularly said things like, should we even be recycling? You know, isn't this kind of dumb to do? Now, you probably conclude, right, that this person was not a really good fit for the recycling club, right? There was uh, a, a, a belief of a core conviction that's out of accord, right? And so for Christians, there are such things that are indisputable matters. So the Apostles' Creed, which we recited earlier this morning, was meant to summarize many of those uh, doctrines that all Christians have historically held to as essential to the faith that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, 
and the Holy Spirit, the deity of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the ascension, the reality that he's going to come again to judge the world, that there is life everlasting for those who are united to Jesus Christ, and so on. Those are indisputable matters. But there are other things beyond those core ideas that you might call disputable matters. And the question is, how do we handle sincere and yet different convictions about those kinds of things? That's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 14. And uh, Pastor Ryan did a lot of the heavy lifting on this last week, so I'm hoping not to repeat what he had to say, but to inch us along toward practically embodying this with one another. But before we get into it, let me just give you a few thoughts as preliminaries to our discussion, okay? Just really quickly. First, let me give you just a a picture, an image to hold in your mind this morning as we're thinking about all of this. When my my youngest was three or four, uh, we would go on hikes together as a family, usually on Saturday mornings, and inevitably... Crosley would make it on his own for about, oh, I don't know, a quarter of the hike or so. And then he would ask, Daddy, please carry me. And usually I would. I would slow down uh, because of holding him. I would lose breath as I was holding him. Certainly I lost time on my hike because of having to carry him. I lost, you might say, for his gain. But it wasn't wrong of him to ask me, particularly at the age that he was. He couldn't do the hike, or at least he thought he couldn't do the hike. I could do the hike, and so he could ask because we were family. Similarly, I remember visiting my grandparents in Lawrence, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And my Nana Rose had advanced Parkinson's disease as long as I knew her, and she walked with great difficulty. But when it was a nice day, she would ask to go out to take a walk in their garden behind their house. And I remember watching my nano, my grandfather, hold her hands. He had to kind of walk backwards as she walked forwards to walk her around this little garden. And it was tedious. It took forever. She could only shuffle her feet. And it was an ordeal even to get her downstairs to go on these walks because they lived in a second floor walk up. It was exhausting for, for my nano. It ate up half his afternoon, it seemed like. But she wasn't wrong. To ask him, he was willing to lose for her gain. And in some ways, it was for his gain, too. They were family. Second thing, just preliminaries, the ethics of community. For the Apostle Paul, what we do with one another really matters. In other words, it's not just what we believe, but it's what we do with what we believe as we relate to one another. And we'll talk more specifics in a moment, but Paul makes clear in this passage, he's not neutral, right? He has a side in some of these disputes and uh, these controversies. With regard to food restrictions, Paul is team liberty. Verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Verse 20, everything is indeed clean. So Paul is not riding the fence here in a controversy. He has a conviction, but being right is not an excuse to run roughshod over others who disagree and thereby tear down the community that God is building. As Dallas Willard put it, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt others with it. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt others with it. Thirdly, just a little context. Food questions agitated the church in a lot of ways in the early centuries. It comes up here in the book of Romans. There's also questions about this in the book of Acts. Paul addresses it in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians. 
And in 1 Corinthians, the issue was how Christians were handling the ethics of food in a pagan society. So in a city like Corinth, a Roman city like Corinth, often meat was butchered as part of a sacrifice to a temple idol. And so then the deity uh, would get his or her portion in a ceremony, a religious ceremony of some kind. But then the rest of the meat from that animal could then be sold to the public in a food market. And so the challenge then for a Christian was, can we actually go to the market? Can we buy meat that may have, or maybe we even know that has been sacrificed as part of some pagan temple sacrifice? And some Christians with a robust conscience knew that the meat was neither better or worse off for its association with these pagan deities. They weren't really gods at all. But others thought that somehow the meat had been infected by this idolatrous association. Now, Paul is with those. Again, he's not neutral. He's with those who say it's okay to eat these things. But he said the claims of love have to be considered as we deal with one another. Paul was willing to forego his liberty if it would set a harmful example to a fellow Christian with a weaker conscience. Now, that's in Corinth. The situation in Rome... The context for our passage this morning was a little different. Still a food issue, but a food issue of a different sort. The Roman church was composed of both Jewish and Gentile converts. And for those who converted to Christianity from Judaism, they come from families who had observed Jewish food laws for thousands of years in some cases. This was part of their culture. This was woven into the practices of their family life. And again, Paul was not neutral in this. He believed Jesus' teaching in places like Mark 7, 19. Thus he declared all foods clean, as well as Peter's vision. In Acts chapter 10, what God has made clean, do not call common. Paul thought that those things meant that Jesus had fulfilled the food laws, and thus he thinks we're not bound by them anymore. So Paul's not neutral, but he's gentle with those who are still keeping the food laws. He's uncompromising on his principles, but he's willing to adapt, ad, uh, uh, adapt his practices. In other words, Paul has hills that he's willing to die on, but not every belief falls into that category. And then the last thing, just in this sort of preliminary preface to what we're talking about uh, this morning, and this is going a little long, so I'll, I'll try to be quicker here. Um, the stakes in this kind of thing. It's not just harmony or peace within the body of Christ that's at stake here. But it's how we handle our disagreements also affects our witness, our mission to the world. Martin Luther, I think every Protestant pastor in the whole world today has a Martin Luther quote somewhere in their sermon on Reformation Day. But uh, Martin Luther put it this way. He said, inharmony is a deplorable offense in the case of Christians, putting them in the worst possible light and making it impossible for them to steer clear of factions. Divisions are an offense to the world's wisest and best who cry out, if the Christian's doctrine were true, they would preserve unity among themselves. But as it is, they envy and slander and devour one another. Luther's saying that when we cannot figure out how to love and care for one another within the church, we give the world just cause to say there's probably not really anything to what they believe. They're just as petty and bitter as everyone else. We dishonor Christ and undermine our witness when we tear each other down. How different Jesus' command in John 13, by this all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into the meat of the passage this morning. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together really quickly and ask for, for God's help as we sit under the word this morning. Lord God, we do want to be people of truth, but a people who live out the truth in the context of community in such a way that we build each other up rather than tear the body down. So would you help us this morning as we sit under your word to think about what it means not just to have gospel truth, but to be a part of a gospel culture of love and forbearance and gentleness and patience and grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so how do we live together with differences on disputable matters? Paul gives us a roadmap here at the end of chapter 14. He says there's a foundation that we need to have as we're thinking about this ethics of community. And then ultimately there's an aim, right, a goal that we're all shooting for. And then in the middle you might say there's two doctrines that he says we have to hold and then we have to apply. So there's a foundation, a goal, and two things that we have to have in mind and we have to apply in our life together in order to do this, in order to hang together when we have disagreements and differences on disputable matters. All right, so let's think about it. Uh, the foundation. For Paul, this is that we are in Christ. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, in him, in the Lord Jesus, 160 times in the New Testament. He even actually invents words to express this idea of being united to Christ. He says we are crucified with Christ. One word in Greek didn't exist before in other Greek literature. Paul made it up to express our union with Jesus Christ. He says we are buried with Christ. One word didn't exist before. Paul made it up to express our union with Christ. He says we are raised with Christ. One word didn't exist before, Paul made it up to express our union with Jesus Christ. And the important thing to see here is that for the Apostle Paul, he sees himself less as in the Roman Empire or in trouble or in peace or in ministry, less of any of those things as he is in Jesus Christ. In other words, that is the most true thing for the Apostle Paul is that he is in Christ. And that's also the most true thing for anyone else that he uh, comes into contact with who is a follower of Jesus as well. They are in Christ. And that means, right, if we are in Christ, that means we are together united to Jesus and therefore together united to each other. It means we are family. Paul was in Christ. Those he calls the stronger believers in the Roman church are in Christ. The weaker believers in the Roman church are in Christ, which again means that we are knit together. In Rome, they were family. And that is the foundation. That is the starting point for this whole ethics of community for the Apostle Paul. And everything else falls along behind that. They're in Christ. They're family. And if you believe that, it will have an enormous effect on how you treat other Christians, even those with whom you disagree. Notice Paul uses the term brother in verse 13 and verse 15. I grew up with three brothers. I have three brothers. And uh, to be honest, sometimes they were jerks to me <laughs> growing up. I'm the youngest uh, of that group. But we fought a lot. 
But the way that I fought with my three brothers and still do fight with my three brothers is different than the way I would fight with an intruder coming into my home. We use the same word, fight. Takes on a whole different significance, right? You fight with your family in a different way than you would fight with an intruder. And you and I, we need to have this category, this understanding, in order to do community together. Every disagreement cannot be a fight to the death. We need a category for how to disagree in Christ. And you see, for Paul, unity does not begin with like-mindedness. Unity does not begin with total agreement. Those things are the fruit of unity, but they're not the preconditions for unity. The precondition for unity is that we are in Christ. So there's a foundation. Right? If we're going to hang together as we disagree, we need to have this, this notion of being in Christ. But then also we need a couple of doctrinal perspectives, a couple of points of doctrine that we need to apply. And the first one, doctrine number one, let's say, that Paul is trying to get us practically to apply, is the doctrine of the cross. At the heart of the Christian story is the notion that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a Christian, Christ died for you when you were doing wrong things and when you were believing wrong things. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. He laid down his life for you when you had deplorable practices and when you had terrible ideas. That's at the heart of our faith. So Jesus then shows us what love is. It's laying down your life for others, for the ungodly even. Romans 5 puts it this way, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ethics of the cross is that we're to follow him in this kind of laying down our life love. Look at verse 15 in our passage. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So it's not just that I need to have the perspective, right, have in mind as I enter into community that Jesus died for me, he laid down his life for me, but I also need to have in mind and right there up front in my perspective as I walk into communal spaces in the church, I need to understand that Christ died for you. And if Christ died for you, if you are worth that much, then surely I can give something up that I like. If it somehow confuses you or wounds you or harms you. This whole idea of the strong who Paul says, by the way, Paul says are actually right. He's on team liberty. He's with the strong. The whole idea of the strong limiting their liberty to help the weak flows out of the idea that Jesus Christ lays down his life for others. Now the ethics of the cross. Practically, what does this mean? Paul gives us a few uh, benchmarks here, a few uh, pillars to hang our hats on. He says, first of all, don't pass judgment on one, on one another, on each other. And Ryan talked about this last week, but just to reiterate, verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And this does not mean an unwillingness to form opinions. It doesn't mean that you don't have convictions. It doesn't mean that even there's not a place for discussion and dispute. But it does mean 
foregoing the passing of a sentence of condemnation on others. It does mean a willingness to be patient. It does mean bearing with others, you see, as less mature or weaker in the faith. Secondly, Paul says, don't cause others to stumble. Again, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And it's actually the same Greek word there that Paul uses twice, the word for past judgment at the beginning of the verse and the word for rather decide at the end of the verse. So literally, it it reads something like this. Do not make a judgment on one another, but rather make a judgment for yourself to never put a stumbling block or obstacle in someone's way. And the whole idea here is what is your focus, right? When you enter into community, when you're in spaces with others, what are you spending your time doing? Are you thinking primarily? Are you running everybody through some grid where you're trying to find out what's wrong? Are you digging for mistakes in other people? Or primarily, are you thinking about how you can make sure you don't trip somebody else up? N.T. Wright tells the story of seeing a little boy shoveling his driveway on a winter morning. This is in England. Actually, I don't, you don't know, need to know that it's in England for this illustration to work. It's just this is so you can picture it better. Uh, he sees this little boy shoveling uh, his driveway, and uh, N.T. Wright says, well, isn't that sweet? You know, he's out, this boy is out, and he's shoveling for his family. But then upon closer inspection, he sees that the boy is shoveling out his driveway and tossing the snow over the fence into his neighbor's driveway. And it's not quite as sweet when you think about it that way. Paul says, make up your mind never to do this. That is, don't be so focused on clearing a path for yourself that you're making it more difficult for others. It's better to take a wound than to give one. It's keeping with the example of Jesus Christ to lay down a liberty rather than to hurt others by wielding it. Thirdly, Paul says, respect each other's conscience. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. I said in the opening, in the preliminaries there, that you can be technically right and relationally wrong. The strong were right. It was okay to eat these things. Nothing is unclean. Jesus has made all things clean, but it's wrong to run over others who haven't quite connected the dots there yet. So even when we're persuaded that we have adopted the correct theological, social, or ethical position, let us not flaunt our position in such a way that a conscientious brother or sister to the left or to the right of us is deeply hurt by our convictions and actions. Respect each other's conscience. And then finally, the ethics of the cross prohibits swagger or arrogance. Verse 16 So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Wear your convictions with humility. When you do challenge others on disputable matters, do everything you uh, can to make sure that it's enveloped in love. Otherwise, you'll actually do damage to the position you're hoping others will adopt. People who might otherwise be persuaded will be turned off by your haughtiness or feel belittled by your scorn and condescension. Summing all this up, Richard Baxter put it this way, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. 
So there's a foundation. If we're going to hang together amongst disagreements on disputable matters, we need a foundation. We are in Christ, and you, you fight with your brothers differently than you, you fight with an intruder. You need the doctrine of the cross. If Jesus laid down his life for you, then surely I can lay down some liberties for others. But then the next doctrine Paul says we have to hold is the doctrine of the kingdom. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And these disputes about food, it's not, it's not that they don't matter at all. They do matter. It's just that they matter less than some other things. For Paul, eating and drinking were externals. The things of the kingdom of God were eternals, right? And eternals have more significance than externals. So our discussions within the body of Christ, they have to reflect proportionality. They need to uh, understand that not everything is on the same level of importance. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are things that are going to stretch on into the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And so the way to work toward unity is to make the kingdom, to make the most significant things, the substance of our focus and our common life together. And then the smaller things of dispute then will not go out of existence altogether, but they will fade in importance. And certainly they won't drive a wedge in the body of Christ. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, truth, like beauty, is largely a matter of proportion. Truth, like beauty, is largely a matter of proportion. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about beauty for a second. If you take the most, you take any feature, let's just say uh, you've somehow discovered the most beautiful nose in all the world, right? If if there was such a thing as an objective decision that could be made about that. The most beautiful nose in all the world. And if you were to highlight it, if you were to zoom in on that nose, if you were to put it in ultra high definition, whatever the highest pixel count that you can have. If you were to zoom in and focus on the nose, the most beautiful nose, out of proportion to the rest of the features of the face, you would not have beauty anymore. You would have a caricature, right? Like what they do when they draw you at the at King's Island, right? The thing of beauty can become ugly. And Paul says truth is like that too. Paul says all food is clean, But if you focus on that liberty while dividing the body of Christ and ignoring the bigger truths of the kingdom of God, you have made something true into something ugly. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. John Stott put it this way. He said the apostle's argument now is that whenever the strong insist on using their liberty to eat whatever they like, even at the expense of the welfare of the weak, they are guilty of a grave lack of proportion. There are hills to die on. But if every one of your beliefs falls into that category, you miss the call of love and therefore are guilty of a grave lack of proportion. Verse 22, Paul says, you know what? Sometimes it's okay to keep your opinions to yourself. Everybody doesn't need to know what you think about everything. By the way, this is why Paul says being quarrelsome is actually a 
disqualifying trait for being a leader in the church. He mentions it both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Why? Because a grave lack of proportion, a willingness to fight about everything, will destroy that which God is building. So there's a foundation, right? If we're going to hang together amidst disputes, there's a foundation. We are in Christ. There's a doctrine, right? The cross, we need to lay our lives down for our weaker brothers and sisters like Jesus does. There's kingdom doctrine we need to apply as well. Matters of proportion, eternals over externals. But then finally, there's a goal. We need to have the goal in mind of when we enter into spaces of community, when we're thrown together, what are we aiming at? And the goal, Paul says, is to build each other up. We're to build each other up. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding or edification. You want to put that into one word. Joe Novenson put it this way. He said, our critical faculty, what he means by critical faculty is what are you spending all your mental energy thinking about? Our critical faculty should not be focused on how someone is going wrong, but rather our critical faculty should be turned instead toward how we can build others up. So let me ask, how do you enter into community? When you go to community group, when you listen to other people share at a Bible study, when you come to church, how do you enter that space? Are you, are you digging for what you can find wrong in someone else? Or are you preoccupied with thinking about how you can build others up? And you see the difference? It doesn't mean that you don't ever express differences. It doesn't mean that you don't try to persuade someone to what you think is a better perspective. But it's all about what you're loaded up to do. What's your first step? What is sort of bubbling up inside you? What is your motivation? The Christian community is meant to be a place of peace. Shalom. Are you pursuing peace? Are you willing to... to uh, be willing to lay things down for it? Or are you, are you, on the other hand, willing to wreck peace for the sake of disputable matters? God is working to build up his church. Are we joining him in this? Or are we willing, willing to ride a hobby horse and tear it down? John Stott, again, writing about this in his commentary on Romans. He said, there must have been some red faces among the strong as they listened to Paul's letter being read out in the assembly. His gentle sarcasm showed up their skewed perspective. They would have to revalue their values. I like that phrase. They would have to revalue their values, give up insisting on their liberties at the expense of the welfare of others, and put the cross and the kingdom first. Now, this is all easier said than done, isn't it? We're going to mess up. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to need to repent to each other, we're going to need to forgive each other. But if we do this, if we're willing to pursue this peace and edification, and note that Paul says you've got to pursue it. It's not just going to happen, right? That pursue is an active, intentional word. But if we are going to pursue, if we were willing to pursue peace and mutual upbuilding, we can be a part of putting something really wonderful and beautiful together here. Paul says another place, 1 Corinthians 14. Let everything be done for building up. May it be so among us. Let's pray together. And then we're going to sing and come to the Lord's Supper. Lord, in some ways, it is comforting to read that temptations to pride and arrogance and division are not novel to our time. 
Sin corrupts and distorts everything, including the way that we relate to one another, and that's always been so. And yet, even as this temptation is not new, it comes to us here in our age, in our way, in a challenging manner as we're trying to build something together here at New City. Lord, we ask that you would give us the mind of Christ, who is willing to empty himself, who is willing to lay down his life for others. Would you give us kingdom-oriented minds? major on the majors and would you help us to enter all of these spaces that we inhabit with one another with the goal of building each other up and we know that we can only do this in the power of the holy spirit so we ask that you would come that you would work among us in jesus name we pray amen you've been listening to a sermon from new city a church in cincinnati ohio visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.